Welcome to Horses for Future. Horse people can make a difference in the climate change crisis. Together, we're learning how. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step -step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. But this podcast is not about training horses. Instead, we're learning how horse people can make a positive difference for the environment. The idea is a simple one. Our horses need pasture, so horse people have land. And we need healthy pastures for our horses. So becoming better stewards of the land is a winning combination. It's good for our horses, good for us, and good for the planet. Individually, collectively, we can make a difference. That's a great concept, but how do we actually go about creating healthy, functional, biodiverse habitats on our land? If you've been listening to this podcast, you know that I've been looking at the work of Dr. Doug Tallamy. Dr. Tallamy is an entomologist who has become alarmed at the loss of biodiversity that he's seen. He's launched, in his words, a grassroots call to action to restore biodiversity and ecosystem function by planting native plants and creating new ecological networks. Dr. Tallamy isn't looking at public lands. Instead, he is calling on private landowners to join what he calls the largest cooperative conservation project ever conceived or attempted. The goal is 20 million acres of native plantings in the U.S. Sound impossible? What I've learned from the horses is major change begins with small foundation steps. So what are the land management steps we could all be taking? That's what I want to explore. In the coming weeks, I'm going to visit with friends from around the planet who are making changes to the land under their care. Dr. Tallamy is the expert. You can go to homegrownnationalpark.com to learn more about his work. In these podcasts, I want to share ways in which people are implementing the kinds of changes he is advocating. A teacher is someone who started before you. I've always loved that definition. Julia Fields fits that definition for me. Julia lives in Australia in a dry climate so water management is a high priority. Julia has been on her property for about 15 years, so she is well on her way towards a landscape with restored native plants and increasing biodiversity. At the end of the previous episode, Julia was just beginning to describe the animals that have moved back to her property now that she has created wildlife corridors for them. You're going to hear about koala bears and even more enchanting about hopping lessons for a young kangaroo. Enjoy. So now the corridors are about 14 years old now and oh boy do they work. They're fabulous. We have koalas which you rarely see here and they because they can come, there's a creek not far down the steep gully at the back of us, there is a creek and it's spring fed. There's a lot of wildlife that comes there and one of our corridors sort of goes as far as it can go on our property and then 
the land gets very steep after our property and that goes down to the spring. So what we think is happening is these koalas and the kangaroos are working out that they can actually come up the hill from being in the steep gully and find food and shelter and so and then they can go down the hill and find water although now we've got water for them as well here so we're seeing lots and lots of koalas which is I just love them yes they freak the horses out <laughs> but um <laughs> Because they're like little, well, they are, they're little bears and they growl. They're not, everybody thinks they're cuddly, but uh, that they're, they're, you know, they, the noise they make at night, it really makes the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. They, they sound scary. <laughs> I've heard koala vocalizations, so I have a sense of, yeah. of what you mean. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, um, and then we have lots and lots of kangaroos, which the horses don't mind at all. And it's wonderful because now we're seeing generations of kangaroos. So we have the mothers and the fathers, so the very big male kangaroos, which are absolutely stunning. And then we have, then we get to watch the joeys come start emerging from the pouch. And then we get to see them. Sometimes we're lucky enough to see them with the come out of the pouch and have hopping lessons. And oh. <laughs> Oh, how neat. Oh, they're so... They're so happy lessons. Yeah, and you see them. I saw one a couple of weeks ago, oh, a couple of months ago now, and um, I was in my arena and the mother and the joey were down in one of the paddocks and the joey came out of the pouch and he was hopping but obviously trying to get his legs organised and he started hopping but was hopping all over it was hilarious and the legs going everywhere and then he fell over and then he was back (laughs) up again and it's like and I I had to come I was supposed to come inside to do something and I couldn't I spent about an hour watching this Joey hopping around and then he was obviously exhausted and he went back to his mum but we can be five to ten meters away from them they seem to know us they know that we're not going to scare them and so they're often They'll be on the other side of my arena while I'm feeding the horses and they're just lying in the in the grass watching us. So it's really lovely. And prior to us doing all this extra work, there was very little wildlife on our property at all. So it was just like things passed through from the way I could see from all the tracks that the native animals passed through and didn't stay, but but now they're staying. So mm. We're very lucky, yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, you created that luck. Yeah. Well, that's right. Yes, yes. you do. And it was just, I, I remember buying the property because um, uh, horse people, as we're known, um, to farmers are renowned for running too many livestock, so having too many horses on too small a property, not having enough ground cover, and so having erosion problems and um, degrading the land and not doing anything with it. So basically just abusing it. And, yes. And so when we bought the property, I said to my husband, this will not do. I, I cannot have our property didn't have horses on it for very long. So it wasn't in bad shape. But I said to my husband, be prepared because I'm going to change this property quite dramatically 
so he'd already seen me gardening down at the beach and he knew that I was sort of, I was unstoppable. So, um, <laughs> so I started, I drew up a plan and then went from the plan. And then as the months progressed, I became more aware of there were quite a few educational opportunities. So the local land management group for the Mount Lofty Rangers, which we are part of, they run education sessions for hobby farmers to provide them with information on how to manage their land and um, weed control and pasture control. So I did that course, or we both did the course and found it very enjoyable. And from that, I re-engaged with the land management group and uh, got funding to um, from the government to become a, a horse property to be used as a teaching facility for other horse owners which was really really it, it was super exciting because we got I think we got a five thousand dollar grant um, and with that money I moved that's the money I used to move some fence lines and to do different water setups and so forth so that we had water available during low rainfall times for native species and for the birds which which are very important so I did that for 12 months with the help of a um, land management officer and he we would meet every three months and and then for the funding what they wanted from us was we provided four education opportunities over the space of I think it was eight months and people came to our property and then the land management officer I'd been working with ran education sessions from our property. So the local farmers, because we are one of the last smaller parcels of land and then the, the farmers that are close by to us have 100 and 200-acre properties, so they're still proper working farms. When I first moved in, uh, with my husband, I remember one of the farmers saying to me, oh, you city folks, you know, you just wreck the place and then you move yeah. on and you put all your horses on there and you just just turns into a dust bowl and it's full of weeds and that's what that place is going to be like. And that's not my intention. But anyway, that's your opinion. And uh, now he's a really good friend. <laughs> and I can go to him for advice on things and he, and he actually will, um, he'll actually be really nice. <laughs> instead of so judgmental <laughs> yeah so we we had I think we had about 50 landowners wow, through our property yeah and it was it was so good because it made us both very proud that we had decided to take this route and that we'd done something that was making the property more well, it was just better for everybody. It was better for us because we not only did we get the satisfaction and enjoyment and the physical exercise of, of doing something like we were doing because planting 500 plants is no small task and each, each year it got harder <laughs> as we got older. It gets harder. And then people would come for the courses and say, oh, wow, this place is amazing. You know, you've, it, it's just beautiful. And you think, and I, I said to one lady, you should have seen it before. And she said, oh, what was it like before? And I showed her an aerial photograph and she just looked at me and went, oh, oh, my God, this is so different. 
So, and uh, everyone that comes here, I had someone come the other night and he got out of his car and said, wow, this is just, this place is amazing. It's just so beautiful. And, and you think, yeah, we did this. <laughs> And I can still have horses and I can use the horses because that was the other thing that I got because I got so interested in everything. Then I found Jane with Equicentral. Yes. And Jane Myers. Then, uh, yes, Jane Myers. And I became, I, she came and, and talked in Adelaide. Gosh, she's a nice lady. I, I convinced her to come and stay with <laughs> us. <laughs> she didn't know me from a bar of soap. And I convinced her to come and stay and we spent the day together going over our property and she gave me so much wonderful advice on how to use the infrastructure that had already been put in place by the previous owners so that uh, not only did it save us money, but it's also given the horses a much nicer life. They have choices about where they want to be, when they want to be somewhere they they exercise especially my horses because they they do run on the smell of an oily rag they get exercise without it feeling like exercise so if they want to get food they have to walk down and uh, quite a way away to get food and then if they want to get water they have to walk all the way back up to get water and they have so much shade and protection now natural protection from the elements because of the corridors they also provide protection for the horses so they'll often be if it's windy or raining they'll they I know exactly where they'll be depending on which way the wind's coming and and I think they enjoy that in fact the I bought a, a warm blood dressage mare that I think I'd alluded to in in previous uh, clinics with you that we we discussed our history and um, she'd been in a dressage barn and she'd had one hour of turnout a day and then she'd had her lesson and then she was in the stall and she came to me and I think she thought she'd died and gone to heaven because we <laughs> we had the opposite problem we had to manage her going out and understanding that being out was okay because she would be out for an hour and then she'd be at the gate calling to yes. come back in because she was so in that so I had to work with her and show her that she could be out in the rain and that it was okay and and she could be a horse so I teamed her up with an elderly Appaloosa gelding that I had who hated coming in they got on so well that every time she would be back at the gate. I would wait to see what he would do and he'd look up and go, oh, and he'd go and collect her and take her back into the pasture again. And then it'd rain and he'd be like, oh, she's at the gate again. And then he'd go and collect her and, and I can see all this happening from the house and I'd be standing there laughing and my husband would be saying, what are you laughing at? And I said, well, Scout's gone and got Belle again and taken her out and, and in the end, she taught him coming in was good. So yes. as he got older, he needed to come in at night because he was in his late 20s and, and um, he didn't weather as well as he thinks, thought he did. And so I just started working with carrots and a bucket. As soon as she would see me, she, she still wanted to come in. 
So she would come up to the gate and then he would follow her and then I would have lots of gifts for them. And so coming in then became palatable for my poor little Appaloosa. So, yeah, but even that, Jane helped me with designing the barn. So what did what did she add that you might not have seen to do? Um, she... So a lot of the barns that I see have solid walls between the stalls so the horses can't see each other unless they have their heads out. And I'd never wanted to do that. So in the the barn that was originally here, there was that set up with a wall and and I had my husband take the wall down and put some uh, poles up so that the horses could touch each other. At least that was easy to explain to him my rationale for doing that. Because <laughs> So when we built the barn, what I did was I was in the process of designing the inside of it when Jane came to stay and we discussed the best ways to keep the horses safe from each other if they weren't the best of pals, but then provide the interaction. And so... What we did was um, I made the stalls a lot bigger than normal stalls. So in Australia, a normal stall is 3.65 metres by 3.6, so square. It's tiny. And when you have horses as big as I've got, it makes a very tight bedroom for them. And then we put poles up so they could still talk to each other, but then an area near where they would be eating where they couldn't see each other. So they could feel relaxed eating and then uh, we could take that out if we didn't need for it to be there. So so at the time when I built the barn, I, I had a couple of horses that would be very upset if they were bothered by somebody trying to, another horse trying to talk to them while they were eating and they just wanted to eat in peace. So we made these little... Um, um, they're only sort of like about this big by this big and and they fit in a section that can be removed but that's where the feed bucket is so they can at least eat and not pester each other. Jane also we talked about environmental design for dust and air circulation and keeping the barn cool because I'd had this idea that if I design my barn so that I got airflow in but airflow out through the roof, then what that would mean is that the hot air in the barn would rise and exhaust out of a vent yes. such okay. in, in the roof. So instead of building my barn with a conventional American barn-style roof, what I did was I built the stable roof is like so, And the other side of the barn roof comes over the top of it like so. So like like so doesn't doesn't translate. (laughs) Doesn't does it? So I'll have to send you a photograph. But what ends up happening is the air, as the temperature rises and the hot air rises to the ceiling, instead of being trapped, it can get out through a venting system. And of all the barns, or we call them sheds, that we have on the property. Mine used to be cooler than the house before we upgraded the insulation in the in the house. So it keeps the horses nice and cool when it's very, very hot. When I showed that design to Jane, she said, that's, that's a brilliant way of doing it. And I was so pleased because I was dealing with a 
a barn construction company who was telling me, no, no, we, we can't do that. That's not, we don't have that as a shed or mm. a barn. That's, you know, and, and so I had to find somebody who would translate my design into CAD and then I had to, then I went back to the barn building company and said, provide me with the, this is, I gave them all the ingredients I needed in a list and said, provide me with this. This is all the steel I need. This is all the siding I need. This is what I want. And then they said, well, do you want us to build it? And I said, no, my husband and I are going to build it. And then the next thing they said was, oh, you'll never be able to build that. That's ridiculous. Those roof sheets are 12 metres long. You're not going to be able to deal with those roof sheets. And But we did and we built it ourselves. <laughs> and um, so, um, but I've tried to implement as many of Jane's things in her plan as I possibly could working with what we what we had. Since then, I've switched over to using more of the products from the fertilizer factory I was telling yes. you about. So I don't use, I initially improved the soil fertility so that we weren't getting so many of the negative weeds that we didn't want because they were more prevalent in a higher pH soil. And so we changed the soil pH by spreading lime over a couple of years and brought the pH back to neutral, more of a neutral pH, which then means that the pasture species that are better for the horses could outcompete the pasture species that wanted more acidity. And so little did I know that Andalusians don't need all this fuss and carry on with grass. <laughs> Because they also evolved in an arid climate. So um, we call them air ferns. And um, I made this grass amazing and uh, and then realised that because we reseeded some paddocks and we changed the species and did lots of work and then realised that that was not what these horses <laughs> needed. But um, we have management strategies for them. Uh, which includes them not being on grass at certain times of the year. And then I got into beef cattle because I quite like cows. So we have classically conditioned beef cattle who do the heavy lifting of eating pasture. <laughs> it's a tough job. Somebody has to do it. Yeah, the, my local farmer friend said to me, you know, I don't know what you do with those cows, but I never see them looking thin. <laughs> and he said, and your horses never look thin either. And then I bought a couple of implements for my tractor that allow me to create my own pasture mulch. So uh, it's a European way of conditioning grass or pasture. And it's uh, the, my latest toy that I bought was a, uh, it's called a flail mulcher. And what it does is it cuts the grass cuts tall grass into pieces that are about that long. So just a couple so of inches. So that when they fall on, yep. yeah, and when they fall on the ground, they create a mulch and they break down much faster than if you were to, what generally happens around me is that paddocks are slashed with a slasher, which is like using a big mower, but then you end up with a, 
you end up with grass that like is this okay. tall in the stem that just falls on the ground. So it takes a lot longer to break down and it can and does generally harbour weeds because it then becomes a moist sort of rank environment for other things to germinate in and creates, uh, it, it doesn't sit on top of the soil, it sort of smothers yeah. the ground. So it'd be more like you were cutting hay, but then left the hay on the field. Yeah, and cutting hay that was more like silage. You know how silage is chopped up into little pieces? Um, do you call it silage or haylage? Um, sort of, you don't get very long stalks in it. It comes out a bit like, do you get chaff there? Yes. Yeah. Uh, so it's a bit like cutting hay, but with hay, you want to you want to keep most of the stalk long and right. Intact. That's what I mean. So if you with were doing the, the slashing. Yeah. It would be like cutting the, the hay Correct, yeah. and just leaving it. But when you're doing the pasture mulch, you're cutting those shorter. Yeah. So it's more like uh, what we would refer to as brush hogging. With it, chews it up. Yeah. Yes. Okay. All yeah. these different names. Yeah. Chews all these it different up. names for the same thing. Oh, it's amazing, yes. isn't it? I know. See, and you'd have to learn all of that. If we swapped places, you'd have to learn a whole new yes. language. <laughs> And all new feed. It's 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 quite um, it's quite interesting. So that means that I can spend a long time on the tractor thinking, which I you know, and just or just not thinking, which or listening to podcasts or whatever I like, because I can. I, I say to my husband, I'm going out to mow, and he knows that I'll be gone for hours. I'll be gone till the tractor runs out of petrol. <laughs> but I find that very satisfying knowing that what I'm doing is going to create more of a soil profile. It's going to be creating a natural mulch that I don't have to pay for. And then the fertilizers that I use, they are full of microorganisms and they're all organic as well. So they, uh, they stink, but they, they do such a great job. <laughs> and I've collected over the years enough equipment to be able to do 99% of the work on the property myself or with my husband's help for the things I physically can't lift. But most of the work I, I do uh, with his help, but I'll do all the planning and the collecting of all the yes. things and then the helping and then the directing. Yes. <laughs> and then... The reinforcement is that I say to him, well, if we get this done, we can go to the winery in the afternoon and I'll shout you to a cheese and wine platter. And he's, his face lights up and he gets back to work. <laughs> <laughs> so it's quite enjoyable. And I drive there and drive back because I don't drink a lot. So, you know, he, so it works, it works extremely well when I use that. <laughs> it's always good to know what is reinforcing an individual yes yes oh, yeah. yes. yes that's right and it's just it seems to never change in in, in its um intensity <laughs> <laughs> so you um you said earlier that you know you've learned to to accept clover that you're not trying to eradicate yes. it so tell me a little bit about yeah. that yeah okay that's a very good point thank you yes so that's why i have the cows so the cows will selectively eat the clover over the grass, especially at certain times of the year. So if I was going to put horses through, when I had thoroughbreds, 
what I would do was I would run the cows through first for a week and then I would walk the paddock to see what they had eaten. And 99% of the time they would go after the clover and they would leave the normal grass species. So then I could run the horses over it and know that they weren't going to be getting too much protein and it wasn't going to be upsetting them. And now with the horses I've got now, the Andalusians, what I do is I still do the same thing. So I run the cows over the pasture that I'm going to put the horses into first. The cows will go after anything that is highly palatable, which is not what I want the Andalusians yes. eating. And then they will leave, the cows will leave the long stalk um, grasses because they don't like them, but they'll go after the soft, finer grasses. It's obviously easier to eat with cow teeth. And then the horses get left with the cardboard. So the cows have got the candy and the horses get the cardboard. And, and, and that, that works so well. In years when I have too much grass, then what I do is I uh, locally I can be paid to have people bring young cows, young beef cattle to a property to get fat um, or to fatten them up and then they are taken off to the market. So I can, I can have cows on the property to reduce the amount of grass I've got um, and then have them removed and the cows might be, might be only on the property for four weeks, but it's enough with... With 20 acres, two horses and three cows, there are times when I've got too much grass that, that and before I, this is before I had the mower, so uh, the flail mulcher. So, so this year I may not have to have, to have the cows. I, I can balance it and I, I don't have to have them here for very long. And if I want them to go, I can ring the, the stock agent and say, can you come and get the cows? And a truck turns up the next day. So it works it works quite well. And the, and the cows add manure, so that's always a plus. Correct. That's right. And in Australia, that's the other thing. We have dung beetles that are only really up and doing their job in the warmer months. And in the winter, the dung beetles, they die off and or they go into the ground. So there's been a lot of work locally with introducing different species of dung beetles that work at different times of the year um, and that's one of the things that I wanted to get more information on next that's my next little project is about the dung beetles because we have a lot of um, native dung beetles and we have them more than any other horse property because I do fecal uh, egg worm counts on the horses before I'm going to use any uh, any worming products that might kill the dung beetles. And at certain times of the year when I know I have to worm the horses because of the parasite life cycle of certain things like bots and, and, and various other things, I can confine the horses to areas where they're not just out on the pasture. And so for the time that they're being treated, they're in a certain area, I can then collect the manure, get it off the land, and then that goes into a big compost heap and by the time that's used, those chemicals from the wormers have been sitting there composting because um, I try and keep my manure pile as hot as I possibly can for a good 12 to 18 months before that manure then gets used. So that and 
The only other thing that we've done was there are a couple of weeds that are introduced, European weeds, and there are certain types of beetles that will kill them, but it's a long-term prospect. So when we bought our property, we had one particular weed. I didn't think the property had the weed, but when we bought the property, it hadn't. these weeds hadn't germinated and it's called um, Salvation Jane. And I don't know if you have that in the States, but it was brought across from England. It has a purple flower on it. And as a flower, it's, it's the plant itself is extremely hardy. And they brought Salvation Jane and Gorse, which is another yes. horrific plant. Yeah, so yes. you would know Why Gorse. Why would you bring Gorse? So, I don't know. It's just stupid. Like, I don't know. I don't know what the rationale was, whether they wanted to make it look more like England. I, I, I don't know. But somebody made a poor choice. It's like bringing rabbits as well. They're another yes. poor choice. And foxes. Um, that was horrific. So like gorse, we have Salvation Jane, which is a softer plant, purple flowers. At certain times of the year, it's very, very sweet. If livestock eat too much of it, it causes liver failure. So it's not a nice thing to have. Horses won't selectively eat it unless there's nothing else there to eat. So I woke up one day and I looked at the biggest pasture we've got, which is 10 acres, and I saw a hint of purple. And it was like the music in my head came up like an Alfred Hitchcock film. I went down to this pasture and I looked and there was purple flower and purple flower and purple flower and I, I, I was, no, 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 this can't be happening. This is, this is not what I want. This is the horrible weed. This is the weed that no horse person wants if they know what they're looking at. So what they say with this weed is that seven, one plant can produce seed that's viable in the ground for up to seven years it's oh, it's when you learn more the more you learn the more you think oh I wish I didn't know yes. that yes <laughs> started off by pulling hand pulling it but it, that was just not working so I had to resort to using herbicides but I also contacted the land management officer and they came and they released some weevils and beetles and so what these little insects do is they eat the crown. One of them is called crown boring weevil and it gets into the centre of the plant because the plant comes up like a little crown and it gets into the middle of the plant and it eats the centre of the plant and kills it. But you can imagine little beetles take quite a bit of yes. time and they can't yes. keep up with the number of plants. So you have to help them along the way with herbicide, which I managed to, to do that and use less and less and less herbicide. And we've we've gotten rid of all of it now over seven years. We get the odd plant that comes up, but my husband and I have got such good radar for this plant now that as soon as we see it, it gets pulled out, put into a bag, left in the sun, and then put into the rubbish because you can't even compost it, um, unfortunately. So there's the, the beetle and then there's a shot leaf weevil which will eat holes in the leaves and stops the plant from photosynthesizing so it affects the growth rate so we still have those and they've worked extremely well and that's why I was thinking that I would the next route I would take would be the dung beetles to see whether we could sustain 
enough of a colony to provide more improvement for the soil via dung beetles. So it's all it's one project after another. Now, what have you done about water? So you said you've got water for the wildlife. Oh. So what have you done for yeah. water? So early on, I knew we didn't have enough rain. We had enough roof space, but not enough rainwater collection when we bought the property. So I'd say we'd saved up quite a bit of money and we had a chunk of money sitting there that my husband was going to use for a skiing holiday. And instead of a skiing holiday, I convinced him to put in a very, very big rainwater tank. So we have a 100, 120,000 litre, I think it is, rainwater tank. Uh, one of them I've put in more since and we also put in a, a bore or a well and the local artesian water here is not the best it's a bit salty but as they were drilling the bore they they were doing water samples for salinity as they were going deeper and deeper and I stopped my lucky number is eight so I stopped them we tested at 40 metres and we got nice water but very little flow, so it, it wouldn't have been usable. At 80 metres, we had a lot more flow uh, and manageable salinity that animals could drink. And humans can drink. It sort of tastes a bit like soda water if you put bubbles okay. in it. So I stopped them at 80 metres and said, that's fine. So what we do is we built... Part of the grant that I got for sustainable horse keeping ended up being sustainable wildlife keeping because I used a lot of the water. Uh, we put in a lot of water movement infrastructure with pipes and, and so forth. So we have big troughs that are in some of our corridors. So they're not for the horses, they're for the wildlife. And they, they're fed in the winter, they're fed by rainwater. And in the summer, they're fed by bore water. So we've got these huge, big, I suppose they're like big bird baths. But they're big stock troughs. Um, it's just the stock can't get to them. And, and they're surrounded by habitat that allows birds to feel safe, to be in the shrubs and then come down and get a drink. And they're, they're protected. So, so that's what we did with that. And that, that works really, really well. And we also use, we're very careful and mindful with the water. But when we have overflow from our roof catchment is so massive that to have enough rainwater tanks to catch all the rain is nigh on impossible some, some years. And so the water that we catch that overflows from our rainwater collection system gets piped back into the well and goes into the aquifer. So I, I sort of give, I take away in the summer and I give back in the winter and, <laughs> and I hope that that works. <laughs> There's not many farmers that do that. The, my farmer friend thinks I'm nuts, but but I I say to him, oh well, your water's not getting salty because I'm not taking too much. Yes. So yes, huh. yeah. So that helps me sustain softer plants like the orchard and things like that. So when you plant these, when you plant the five thousand trees, how big is the tree that you're planting? Oh, they're what we call tube stock. They would the plant itself would be that tall. So about six inches. I have no idea what inches are. So yeah, so so about six inches. They come in a little square 
pot that's about the same height as the plant and they're called tube stock. You plant them in the rainy months and then they sustain themselves amazingly. Most of them will sustain themselves over the summer dry months when the soil dries out. They're astonishing. So you don't have to go out and water so, them. You're 500. No. And how long then did it take for these six inch starts to start looking like trees? Oh, the wattles, so my favourite ones, they start looking like trees within six months. They shoot up, so they grow very fast. The trees are quite quick too. So, I mean, I've got some trees that are still, they're still juvenile, but they would have taken probably about two years to get up and start looking like a proper tree. I've got some closer to the house that I give a bit of supplementary water to because I'm close by and... Um, and they're wattles and they're my favourites. So I give them a bit of extra water. And I pr the other thing is the ones that are out in the pasture, I don't prune. But the ones that are closer to the house, I can prune them to a shape. So I can, I can prune them to make them more showy and into uh, I can prune them so that I know I'll get more flowers. Yes. Over the years, I've worked out what microclimates I need to develop to sustain new plantings if that makes sense so they're not competing yes. with each yeah. other and clearly when you when you put these young trees in the wildlife are not coming in and just devouring oh no yeah they are <laughs> they are so what how do you protect do you have to protect them so yeah so each plant that goes in has to have a tree guard around okay. it and a stake and I've worked out over the last 15 years the ones that work and the ones that don't work. Yes, so what happens is too, the tree will grow out the top of the tree guard and then the kangaroos will come along and graze the top yes. of it off because it's nice succulent and they like baby gum trees. So if it's a good year, if all the planets line up and it's a good year, then the trees will get up high enough for the leaves to be tougher so that the kangaroos don't like them. We do have a problem with rabbits as well, but the tree guards tend to stop the rabbits from doing any damage. And by the time the trees are up out of the tree guards, the rabbits have lost interest in them. Yeah. yeah. But the rabbits do like my European plantings. So I have young ash trees that look like they're in jail. <laughs> to protect them from everything that wants to eat them, <laughs> which is rabbits and kangaroos and birds like to strip the leaves off them. So, yeah, so it looks pretty messy to start off with, but then then I can slowly let them out of jail onto, into parole and they, they can fend for themselves. So it's, it's challenging because if you're providing plants that these animals like eating naturally, it's tough to try and get the balance right. And you just hope that you've planted enough because you know there's going to be attrition. You plant enough for them to, and pray that they'll get up and running before anything eats them. And, and we've, we've had, I would say out of all the trees we've planted, we've had probably about 70% success, 70% success rate. We had a few years where, or one particular year where we had the worst wind that it was 100, 110 kilometre an hour winds just constantly for about five days. And when you were talking about the 
shed, the, the arena roof yes. rippling. My yeah. barn roof was actually, and it's built, my barn is built to the highest wind rating that Australia has, and the roof was lifting. I didn't oh. want to be in the barn. I didn't want any horses in the barn. And my friend who has a, her arena is nearly 100 metres long. So her arena complex is 100 metres long and 30 metres wide. It's it's crazy. As she parks her big truck in there and all sorts. So the roof just peeled off that in the wind. She lost all the big, you know, the big lights they have, yes. the big, all of them. Moved. I went there one day. She said, yeah, come and have a look at the arena. <laughs> it was like, it looked like a tornado had been through it. So unfortunately, that weather coupled with rain and coupled with having juvenile gum trees, we lost, I would say, probably 30% of our gum trees because they just could not sustain holding themselves up in the wind. And then the ones that got pushed over and ended up like and sort of on an, coming out of the ground on an angle, I chopped them off with a chainsaw so that they would grow into shrubs, and which they do. If you coppice a gum tree, it will turn into a big shrub and then eventually it may go back up again. So at least we didn't lose all of them. I'm feeling almost exhausted listening to all that you have done. And I'm thinking if, if somebody had just purchased within you know recent memory a horse farm, and on the one hand they're listening to you know, it's so beautiful. We yeah. have the trees, we have the wildlife yeah. corridors, yeah. and we have horses, and they, they coexist, and I can have pasture, and I can have wildlife. And they're thinking, oh, this sounds so lovely, and I don't have to be trashing my property just because I have horses. Mm -hmm. But oh mm -hmm. my goodness, it sounds exhausting. It's definitely the hard way. It's, it's the easy way is to not do anything of what I've done. And or do bits and pieces, but not do all of it, which I but that doesn't sound I think is fine because if you go that route, you end up with yeah. without the wildlife, without yeah. the trees. Well, you end up with yeah uh, with degraded pastures. You end up mm. with what your farming friend said. Oh, this is what horse horse people do to horse to to property. Yeah. 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 And you know, some people don't. Some people don't see what we see. You know, that they, they they don't understand that by doing what they're doing and not looking after their land, that it will cost them more. They'll have to feed their horses more. They will have more problems with pasture not growing. Yeah, health issues. Yeah. Higher vet bills, their horses will be eating things that they shouldn't necessarily be eating. The property value, so the the if you looked at the capital value of the property, it would be degraded by the activities, not improved by the activities. I couldn't, in all honesty, have a horse property and not look after it because it would depress me yes. so much. Gardening and creating nice things and creating nice landscapes has always been something that I've been really interested in doing. I think the only the only regret I have, I think, is that we could probably be better served by having 10 acres and not 20, just because of the sheer size and the amount of time and effort it takes to manage yes. that parcel of, parcel of land we have and then work full time and then have horses and all the other responsibilities that go with being an adult. It makes it 
sometimes I think, oh, gosh, if only I didn't. But then I counter that by thinking I've got no close neighbours. I have all this wonderful land. And if I if parts of it aren't perfect um, and they're not, you know, the way I, I would like it to be, it gives me something to work towards yes. in the future. So I, I've started planning in measured areas rather than becoming overwhelmed by what I haven't done yet, which is working quite well. And it's allowing my husband to stay along with me for the ride. <laughs> so that's a good way of doing it. So instead of trying to tackle everything at once, you've picked areas that you're, you will work mm, on. Mm. Yeah. And I picked, so, so the areas I picked first were the areas that I could see from the house and that I could see from the horse barn and those sorts of things so that when I was looking at them, I was looking at what, wow, look what I've yes. achieved, you know, and then you move further. And so you're sort of like painting a landscape, as it, as it were, because then you sort of move to another area and you then your view opens yes. up. So it's, it's a really nice way of doing it. But then when I'm doing anything, everything is on a grand scale to my friends who have gardens in, in the city. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, they're moving soil in a wheelbarrow. I'm moving soil with a tractor. <laughs> you know, I think I have more fun. <laughs> yes, well, there's something to be yeah. said for the larger canvas. There's a lot to be said for it. Yeah. yeah. And I would think after a while, yeah. you know, yeah. as you begin to restore a healthier, more functional ecosystem, natural ecosystem, that it begins to work with you in both maintaining yes. and expanding the, the wildlife corridors. Yes, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's, it, it certainly does. We've I'm already starting to see regeneration and self-seeding of some species. So they they have the ability now to start, you know, populating by themselves without me having to yes. intervene, which is which is really nice. That in itself means you can sort of go, oh, okay, this year I might only do a hundred, and I might do specialized plants that I know I can add in and dot in around the landscape rather than just doing massive plantings of areas of three and four hundred plants and it's now giving me time to change the way I garden for food which I couldn't really do to start off with because we didn't have a lot of protection for the vegetables the vegetables I did start growing early on pretty much got blown out of the ground it was so windy <laughs> so I did start off a a conventional garden bed design, rotate, rotational um, vegetable gardening. And I found that whilst that was very good, I wasn't able to keep up the water to the plants as much as I knew they yes. needed. So I started researching a way of being able to provide vegetables for us, but in a more water efficient manner. And I happened across a local man who's a a retired environmental scientist who had done a ton of research. It was Narnia for me. There was so much information there. I could, I was just absorbing his website content, the podcasts he'd done, the links he had on his website. And he, he's designed uh, these beds called wicking beds that work like a massive self-watering plant pot. And they're so efficient with water that it, it's astonishing. So it's going to be a very hot day today and I have just watered my two beds, which are just outside yes. this window, 
and each bed gets nine litres of water just as a top-up for the top part of the soil. And they're under the soil, so there's about that much soil. So about a foot. About a foot, yeah. Then there's a platform that creates a reservoir of water underneath and the platform has feet that go down into the water that has a medium in it that draws the water naturally using osmosis through the feet and you structure the soil in such a way that it becomes, it wants to suck water up like a sponge. So there is always water available at the bottom of the bed in the, in the reservoir. And then you have the soil, which is using osmosis to draw the water up into the soil profile. So the opposite to watering from yes. the top, the plants get their roots into the moist water and then they draw more water from the reservoir. So you're controlling not only the amount of water you need to use, but the amount of water loss um, because it's a closed system. And the amount of evaporation from the ground is minimised because you use mulch around the plants and you there is a little um, pipe that goes from the top down into the reservoir that you put a hose into and you fill through the, the pipe and then when it gets full at the at the height that the water needs to sit at in the reservoir there's a little there's a little pipe and you turn that when the water starts flowing out of that little pipe on the side you know you filled the reservoir okay. up enough very easy to set up it's the next step down from hydroponics where the plants sit in a growing medium and water and they're fed nutrients but they don't have soil. And a lot of the soft lettuces and soft salad greens and some tomatoes and quite a few plants now are grown commercially hydroponically because it's a very cost-effective and efficient production right, method right. for broad-scale farming. So I'm just doing it on a micro level but it's very addictive because <laughs> it's so uh, I planted my beds just before Christmas it was just after the clinic that we did yes. the, the, that afternoon we went out and collected the beds and I set about putting them together which wasn't very difficult and filled them with the soil and then went out and bought some little seedlings and I'm already harvesting rocket and lettuce and arugula what else am I and um, spinach leaves and what I'm finding is if you grow them in a wicking bed the leaves are so tender because they're full of moisture because they're not they're not struggling to find moisture yeah. in the soil even though you're watering the soil they're in a captured area so they're always uh, they're all, they always have moisture available so, so they're, and they're never um, stressed so they just grow no wow it's brilliant yeah, and they taste oh the rocket the rocket is just I will walk past and just pinch off a leaf as I'm walking past and eat it it's so and the first day I did that I was, I was quite shocked I thought gosh this tastes even nicer <laughs> than what I buy from the shops <laughs> the fact that I can go out and think oh for lunch today I might have a, a salad and I'll go out with my little bowl and pick some greens from my wicking bed and then come back inside. And and I think, wow, that was just easy, yes. wasn't it? I don't find stuff in the bottom of the fridge that's deteriorated because it's been in there too long or I can just go outside. So for me, it's, 
it's manageable, but it's very efficient, and I and I like that. Um, and it stops me from getting to planting too much because I physically can't. Right. <laughs> right. So yeah, so I do tend to get carried away with things at times, <laughs> as you might be telling. I was sort of getting that impression. Yes. Yes. Very enthusiastic about lots and lots of things. So. But, you know, I like learning by trial and error and I do lots and lots of research and sometimes I get stuck on the research and I never actually start because I, I'm so, um, uh, because I get so overwhelmed by the amount of information I've absorbed, I don't know what to do with it. And then there are other things like gardening that I'll just go out and um, and do without without even worrying about what happens. And if, if it fails, well, well, it fails, I'll just start again. So hence me finding the wicking yes. beds, which I, I think we'll end up with more. <laughs> it is endlessly wonderful. And, you know, once you start seeing, you know, you have a little bit of success managing the land mm -hmm. and that leads to more and that leads to more. And, uh, and before you know it, you've created a really beautiful environment for yourself, for the horses. It's healthier, better for the planet, all of those mm -hmm. things. Yeah, and it actually, you know, people might think, oh, gosh, it's going to cost so much money to do this and it's going to be so difficult. But, you know, initially there are some costs associated with setting up the environment so that you can manage livestock and your new plantings, but it doesn't have to cost the earth and you don't have to use fixed infrastructure. In places, I've actually used plants, once they've got big enough, that are... They're called kangaroo thorns and uh, they're so spiny. Oh, gosh, nothing's going to want to touch them. So I can actually now move fences away from plantings that are planted inside the little barrier of kangaroo thorn and the horses and the cows won't go near them because the first time they go, oh, I might have a nibble on that, they realise very quickly that it's extremely unpalatable and painful. painful. Yes. <laughs> So I've actually been able to use in some places temporary infrastructure, which I can then pull up and reuse somewhere else. So I think now we're, we're at a point where we're at the tipping point of we're actually saving money because the plants are propagating themselves and natural selection is starting to happen. We have the benefit of having a better environment around us we don't have the erosion issues that our neighbours have. Yes. We are able to also change certain aspects of the land to allow us to slow water down that might have the potential for our property to shed water from, from it to our neighbours, which not that I don't want to share water, but I'd like to keep my soil as moist as I possibly can. So the way I've also done my plantings is to slow the water that get, goes below the subsoil down. So there's various layers of plants that get to that water before it goes to my neighbour. And I know that my neighbour planted some absolutely beautiful claret ash trees a few years back when we first moved in and they did beautifully off our water runoff and now he's having to irrigate them. So now I know <laughs> that it's working. what I'm doing is working. So... And you get to watch the evolution of things. And for us, seeing all the birds and the 
wildlife, you know, and for people to say, oh, wow, this place is beautiful, you know, yes. it's amazing, and you think, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and it's and it's a horse property, and it's a it's you know it might not be an intensive horse property, but it was never designed to be. But it, it could sustain more horses than it has quite easily without being without being damaged. But we choose to cross graze because it's it's more efficient for us to have cross grazing. So uh, and you can still make an income from cross grazing if. if somebody had horses that were boarding and they didn't want to have as many horses and they wanted to try and change, there is a, there is a good income to be had from um, cross-grazing livestock for, uh, for farmers there because they know horse people have good grass. Most horses can eat it except, except mine. Yes, yes. Okay. yes. <laughs> yes. Mine eats straw in spring, so... <laughs> It's just so, oh, gosh, it's so, I, yeah. I didn't do enough research there. I went in emotionally with that breed. So. <laughs> well, you you know, you live in an arid climate. It makes sense to have Andalusians. And yeah. then, of course, you yeah. know, yes, but then yeah. you, you make beautiful <laughs> pasture and, oh, well, so much for that theory. Yeah. Whoops. Whoops. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. I have great cows. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, so it's been a bit of a journey. Well, it certainly, hopefully, will give people lots of food for thought and good inspiration in terms of what can be done. Yeah, I hope so. And if, if anyone would like to find out more or they want some information or um, they want to ask me any questions, I'm more than happy to uh, be a resource or point people um, in the right direction of where I found really useful, helpful information. But I think uh, Jane Meyer's Equicentral uh, website is, I have all her books. I bought everything that she wrote um, because it's good common yes. sense. It's, yes. It's, She's an excellent resource. You can replicate that. Yes, definitely. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and that's the place where I would, I would go. And the Wicking Beds, where, what is that website? Uh, so the Wicking Beds, the website, is, it's a local guy not far from me. His website is called um, Adelaide Hills Vegetable Gardens. He has all the information on there for his Wicking Beds, but they, they're available worldwide. So um, I would imagine that there will be someone in pretty much every country of the world doing similar. something very similar. It's starting to become extremely popular, yeah, and I thoroughly I'd thoroughly recommend them over conventional vegetable gardening. Um, Some, someone else was fact, telling I, me about them recently, and they sound they sounded very intriguing. Yeah. yeah, they're just and the other great thing is they're at a good height, so they're at waist height, so you're not bending over. If there's anything on the ground that would want to come on and nibble them, they can't because they're up high. And um, for me, that's good because I did have. Uh, on occasion, I did have kangaroos that would be stealing my vegetables as well. So we had to try to stop the kangaroos. Uh, as awful as it was, I did grow a patch of strawberries for them for a while. But having kangaroos, especially big male kangaroos in close proximity to your house is not ideal because when you walk outside and they say, this is my vegetable patch and you're not coming anywhere, they're quite imposing. Yes, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. And you can easily, uh, mine are netted with shade 
cloth today so that the sun doesn't absolutely fry the plants. So it's very easy to set that up and do it straight away in the morning. So if you're time poor, they're fabulous. Neat, neat. Yeah. Well, yeah. I thank you immensely because this has been this has been grand, and yeah. Oh. And what I'm really appreciative of is you're you're growing, you're doing all of this in a climate that is so very different from mine, and that's really what I yes. wanted. I want to visit with lots of different people in lots of different parts of the world, so you know where we can really yes. start to get a sense of you know what we can do that we really can make a difference we we can mm -hmm. improve the land that we have that we can make it more mm -hmm. sustainable we can create wildlife corridors we can mm -hmm. dr Tallamy's homegrown national parks we can all have a yeah, part in the home yeah fabulous. it's a fabulous concept mm -hmm. and yeah, we, yeah. we can all participate in that and the concepts are universal. What you may need to do yes. to get, you know, on your property in your climate will be different from what I would be doing in my cold, uh, wet, damp, <laughs> upstate New York kind of climate. But the concepts are still there, are still universal. Yeah. yeah. Yes, absolutely. And I think the key things are choosing the plants that are going to grow in your area. So doing the research about plants that are indigenous to your yes. region, wherever you are, making sure that your soil is the is of a quality that will sustain those plants. So I would highly recommend taking pH tests of the soil, which you can do yourself with a little kit, or you can take core samples, which I did, and send to a lab and they will tell you what your soil profile is. And if you don't want to do that, you can do some plantings to start off with on a small scale, say half a dozen, and see if they grow or if they show any signs of getting sick or diseased. And then you'll know that your soil isn't quite right because sometimes soils lose their profile over time. And then it's just time and patience and planning what you would like to look at. I think that's the, the things that I did. What, what would I like to look at and, and what animals do I want to have back on my property? And the, the one bird that I felt I'd really made a mark was when we have tiny little wrens that are, oh gosh, they're only like, I don't know, size of their bodies would be the size of a 20 cent piece or something. They're tiny, tiny birds. And the first day one of those birds hopped across and flew into a tree, my husband said, oh, I think we've done a good thing. The wrens are back. And the female wrens are very nondescript brown, grey colour. The male wrens are a startling Asia blue and black. They are phenomenal looking little birds. And then over the coming months we just we were inundated with them. And what they do especially around the house because of what I've planted around the house is they eat all the insects that we don't necessarily want to have like mosquitoes yes. and flies, some spiders. I'm not happy to see, you know, I'm not sad to see the spiders go. And we, we don't have webs around the house because the wrens will come up and clean everything up for us. So, 
So it's wonderful. Then you start seeing how you are symbiotically working with yes. nature yes. And, yeah. and they need these things to survive and, and we've created the habitat to help. It goes on a bigger and bigger scale. Yeah. Mm. That's exactly that's mm. exactly the point. Yeah, it's perfect. Mm. Mm. Neat. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suspect yeah. people will have more questions and it'll be fun to do this again and sort of revisit in a different season. You know, when you're looking out yeah, the window sure. at a different landscape because it's a different season. Yeah. So you're in summer right now yeah. and we're in winter. So we'll have to yes. do it when we flip the seasons around a little bit. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I can, yeah, gosh, today's going to be like an oven temperature and then in six months' time it'll be, you know, five or six degrees. It's really quite an astonishing uh, climate. Yeah. But, uh, we, go, we, we, we grow good wine, so... <laughs> That's a good part. <laughs> well, I thank you immensely, immensely. My yeah. pleasure. My absolute yeah. pleasure. It's been great fun. Yeah. What a great conversation. Horse people truly can make a difference. Next time, we're going to zoom up to a very different part of the world, to Scotland, to visit a good friend of mine, Amanda Martin. Both Julia and Amanda live in very windy landscapes, but where Julia has had to work hard to keep water on her land, Amanda has the opposite problem. She has too much water. In a recent conversation, I caught up with what she's been doing to make her land a better place both for her horses and for wildlife. Horse people can make a difference, and together we're learning how. <laughs>